there just comes a point at which you say, well, hold on, there's almost not really a choice here because it, if we as men are not willing to talk about sexual violence towards women, well, what sort of men are we? I mean, it, it feels we've got to a point whereby it's not really acceptable to not have a conversation. Hello and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the Project Manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the Director at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And we've got a really interesting, good episode today, I think, Julie. Well, it's different. Let's put it that way. And uh, it, it came out of um, something that has become a little bit of a preoccupation for me as I've been doing <laughs> events around my new book going public with the fact that we don't see men and women talking directly mm. about sexual violence and what we need to do as a society to change our culture around that. So I decided I'd go to two people I have known for a really, really long time, two men, both of whom have read my book both of whom I've talked to about my book and asked them to talk about why it's so hard for ha us to have this conversation and how we can at least begin to have this conversation. So in the first part of today's episode, you're going to hear from my good friends, Neville Mackay and Phil Hart. Neville was recorded in London, England, which is where he lives. And uh, Neville has recently retired after a career as an actuary. Uh, and Phil Hart retired as a school teacher uh, in Sydney, Australia, a few years back, but still worked as a conflict resolution trainer and a mediator. And I've known Phil, I think, for about eight years now. And he was very helpful in reading my book in draft. So I went to these two guys and said, would you please record something with me about what the challenges are of men and women talking about sexual violence? And they were incredibly good sports and said yes. And then you're going to hear after that conversation uh, from Khalil Jessa, who is a longtime supporter and friend of the NSRLP, a really great guy. He did his legal training at Windsor Law, which is how Julie got to know him as one of her students. Um, and he does some really interesting and good reflecting on Julie's conversation with Neville and Phil. Yeah, and I wanted to bring Khalil in, who uh, listeners to the podcast might remember has actually done a previous episode for oh, us that's right. of course on Islamophobia, um, a very um, widely listened to episode. Mm. And his mom, Sadiqa, yes. is an activist within the Muslim community on LGBTQ rights. So there's also a podcast by her. This is a very talented family. Mm. So I went to Khalil and asked him to reflect as Dana, you just said, on the conversation with Phil and Neville, in large part because I wanted the perspective of a younger generation. Um, so we've got a conversation with um, two old guys, <laughs> along with an old girl, me. <laughs> uh, and then we're going to hear Khalil's perspective from, what, 30 years younger. And I think that that gives us um, a really interesting take on all the different challenges and the ways these are being experienced differently in different generations, but they all come back to the same thing. How do we have this very sensitive, difficult, and often upsetting conversation? 
first of all, thank you both so much. And I think that probably it's worth listeners knowing that uh, one of you is in Sydney where it's seven o'clock in the morning and the other is in London, England at 10 p.m. at night. So Phil and Nev, respectively, thank you very much for doing this at this really wonderful time. I want to begin asking both of you to say a little bit about what your initial reaction was after reading my book. And, you know, let me just say, I'm sure it was upsetting on many levels because you both know me personally and you hadn't known about this history beforehand. But I'm most interested really in, you know, your other reactions and feelings about the material in the book, if it's possible to separate those out. So let me start with you, Neville. You've known me, shockingly, since I was 17, but you didn't know about my history of sexual violence until you read my book. Well, Julie, I think I just had a quick reread of um, the beginning of the book, actually, and it's an absolutely brutal opening. By page 10, you've told us that four, three men and one, one uh, teenager had very violently sexually assaulted you. And uh, that is quite some opening to the book. I, I was sort of reflecting on, as you just said, we've known each other for a long time. And I was thinking that the time when we came to university, came to college together, and how you were as that 17-year-old. And I remember you as being supremely self-confident. And I could see that right from the start, you were going to enjoy yourself at university. You were going to make the most of your opportunities. And you struck me right from the beginning as someone who wasn't going to take any, any shit from anyone. And so when I read those first 10 pages, yeah, it, to be honest, it was deeply shocking. You, you make the point in your book that you didn't really have the language for what had happened. Mm -hmm. And that resonated with me immediately. And I, I felt really quite depressed, actually, because I thought, now we know a lot more about it. We have these words, date rape, and, or expressions date rape, and they're horrible, but at least we've got some... Better understanding of yeah. that, yeah, and the vocabulary, indeed, yeah, and and it just, it just you reiterated for me just how we didn't have the language, we didn't have the understanding, we we really just didn't know, and that we certainly weren't, you certainly weren't going to get any support from the university, from mm. the police, whatever. It just wasn't. You, you made the point that you didn't, you didn't think of going there because you just sort of knew and so I found that profoundly depressing actually because I knew you were right you wouldn't have got that support even if you'd reached out and tried to get it I mean one thing I'd love to talk about you know maybe a little bit later in this conversation is just how different it really would be today because I agree with you we have more you know understanding and we have some language we can put on this uh, that's different I think a lot of this is still kept hidden but maybe we can come back to that Bill what about you Neville, uh, everything you say re resonates for me and, and I, um, I really respect what you were saying. Uh, for me, um, I think I got to the end and, and sort of had to catch my breath. I, I was just completely gutted um, that you'd been through all this. We know the stats. We know that these things happen. We don't want them to happen, of course. You, you were so sort of open and bold in telling us these terrible things and, and also sharing your vulnerability at the time, you know, the fact that you couldn't tell even your best friend because I had known you sort of well after these events and, right. and to know the Julie of today, but to see how you got to that point through the experiences that you'd had. And so um, for me, had okay, it was important for me. Yeah. And I... And, and Thank you. And, and I want to dig a bit deeper, which yes. you know, is, is, I think, the hard thing that you're both describing. So one of the things I've heard a lot, I've heard a lot from a lot of people about this book, and I continue to every day, 
often when I hear from men, they are talking about this giving them a somewhat different perspective on some of the things that they may have experienced in the past. So sometimes this might have been, you know, people tell me stories about something they maybe witnessed years and years ago, maybe behavior by a creepy teacher or a sports coach, or, or maybe even a, a friend of theirs, a buddy of theirs, which at the time they sort of, you know, didn't really take a lot of notice of, or maybe laughed along with, but now they're thinking back and they're kind of reflecting and wondering, well, was that really so harmless? And others have talked about their own history with women and whether they unintentionally crossed any lines in the past that they were unaware of or insensitive to at the time. Now, you know, this is, I think, a really, really hard question for men and women to talk about. Just to begin with myself, you know, um, I have thought many things in the past that I now realize were really stupid <laughs> and, um, and uninformed. And I feel like I'm still learning all the time, especially at the moment about racial identity and racism. So I don't think we should be ashamed of changing how we understand things, but I'm wondering, are there any questions that you're now asking yourself about past events that you hadn't asked yourself at the time or before. Neville, you and I have talked a bit about this already. Do you want to begin with this? Sure, yeah. I mean, what is, when I read your book, one of the things I, I actually did for myself was to go back to some experiences that I'd had in my school days before university, actually, which have, which have sort of popped in and out of my mind over the years. But to be honest, they're nowhere near on the scale of yours, Julie. But nonetheless, they were, they were troubling events mm -hmm. and they were puzzling events. And, and I just took the opportunity, motivated by your disclosure, to, to just write these things down, actually, just mm -hmm. purely for my own benefit, because I just thought if I write them down, then I can maybe understand them a little bit better. I'm not sure that I do, but, I, but it has been quite cathartic to write them down. I mean, I can, I can think of one event with a sports coach where I was half-decent tennis player when I was at school. And I, I remember you being a lot more than half-decent. And I, I, I was in the county squad, junior county squad. Um, the coaches used to rotate around and they used to teach different ones. But there was one, one guy and he just always wanted to be with the young girls. I mean, our coaches might say on the follow through to tennis, you know, that you finish pointing to the top of the trees or to the sky, that sort of stuff. Whereas he would simply wrap his enormous arms around the young girls and then do it with them. It was only when we got older that we started talking amongst ourselves about this, this particular coach. And just, I, I remember having this conversation where we were saying, oh, thank goodness he, he wants to stay with the girls and he doesn't want to, because we didn't want him anywhere near us. Clearly, as older boys, 17, 18-year-old boys, we were really saying, well, there's nothing we can do to right. report him or protect right. the younger girls. That's very disturbing. But, but to be honest, it goes back to our conversation about the language and what was going on. I had, oh, mm -hmm. I, we had no idea how to deal with it at all, I don't think. In many ways, I, I think just look at it and go to the adults in the room, hold on, isn't this blindingly obvious? I mean, we can all see it. We talk about it. We joke about it, not that it's in any way funny. And yet you, the fellow adults, seem to allow it to go on. And, so I, and, and it actually occurred to me that, yeah, what, what sort of preparation did that give to us 17, 18-year-old boys as we then went on to university, met with yourself and others? And you, in your second part of your question is, yeah, therefore I can look back and think, yeah, in as a group of young lads at university, 
at times in our own insecurity, maybe fueled by a bit of alcohol, did we do wholly inappropriate things? Yeah, we, we definitely did. Mm-hmm. And we would have laughed them off and we would have said, oh, that's okay if we, if we humiliate a, a woman or two along the road. It's just all part of the banter. Right. And um, what I'm interested in, though, Neville, and this has you know, come up a couple of times now, and maybe this is a good time to ask you both this, as you describe both the coach, but also, you know, the lad activity at university, which, you know, I well remember. <laughs> I, didn't, I don't remember you ever doing anything inappropriate, but there was plenty of lad, you know, activity. I, I'm not sure it is different now. I mean, you know, each of, each of you have talked about this with that assumption that now it would be different. You know, so for example, and I think this is one of the hardest actually, you're out with a, a, you know, a bunch of other men everybody's having a bit of a laugh about something or maybe somebody's you know one of that group is coming on to a woman at the bar and everybody's you know encouraging I mean it's still incredibly hard isn't it to call out that kind of behavior in that moment so so there's kind of the question of what was allowable at the time and Neville I think you really uh, drew attention to that in in your discussion about, you know, even when we saw a teacher doing creepy behaviour or whatever, no one confronted that. There was just sort of a dodge it and hope it doesn't happen to me sort of attitude. And mm. and we know from, you know, various stories that schools did not deal with that very well. I agree with you in terms of what, what hasn't changed. I, I think collectively, maybe one of the challenges we face, particularly as men, is that when these things happen and and we assess the situation immediately and think, actually... It's not that straightforward. I don't feel that comfortable because I don't know this group well enough to speak mm, candidly. Mm. The three of us, I think, now feel comfortable having this conversation. But it's it's often not like that at all. Exactly. And yeah. uh, it's very easy. I think I think as as the if we're going to call people out, we sort of then have the same challenge that women have always had, haven't we? Is that oh uh, well, it's just a bit of fun. We're not serious about it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. And for us, in some ways it's sort of easier to take the soft route under pressure because nothing bad's going to happen to us, is it? Sexual violence is 95% in the statistics, male on female. So in other words, yes, sometimes men are themselves the victims of sexual violence and sometimes sexual violence is, is, is you know, perpetrated by women, but 95% of it is male on female. So if we keep seeing that repetitive pattern, it's very difficult not to try to come up with explanations for that, you know, and some of these explanations are just, you know, in my view, at least completely ridiculous. But there are some very more nuanced discussions going on about the impact of socialization on boys. And part of that, of course, is what you were just talking about, Neville, you know, like it, it, it doesn't look like you're a guy's guy if you call someone out on sexist behavior. And there's also pressure, you know, to be the alpha male. And, you know, something else that, that a younger guy pointed out to me recently, which is there's still in sexual relationships, a lot of pressure on the guy to make the first move. So, you know, is there anything here that helps us to understand why we see so much male on female sexual violence? Phil, do you want to? Try this one yes. first. Yeah, thanks, Julie. Uh, I've been reflecting on this ever since you you raised, um, you know, this is a possible sort of question. It seems I frame it in terms of power and also achieving our interests. Hmm. Um, so um, whatever form power might take for you, we often want to feel powerful. We don't like it when right. we don't feel powerful. 
And I think um, it's, it's widely said that sexual violence isn't about sex. It's about controlling someone else. You know, it's about taking charge about of power. Yeah. About power. I think we know that, that people use behaviours to achieve their goals. Right. Okay? That's kind of how humans work. But you asked us to, to, mm. to look for a sort of increased understanding of why right. men might be, some men might be doing these abhorrent things. And it feels to me like there's something here that, that we already know from other behaviours. So You know, and I think that it's important to say here that, you know, simply trying to explain this is only a tiny fragment of what we might do to address it, but is at least beginning to flush out what might lie underneath, you know, these incredible statistics. Do, do, you, do you want to react? I mean, my observations on it is that it's really, really complex. The things that I... I guess where I've tried to focus on it in terms of the the mainstream that can be influenced, um, which it, which I think are sort of like, like my friends at uni and your friends at university. You know, mm -hmm. when we behave badly, I actually think with with a bit of guidance, with a bit of open discussion, discussion with girls at the time, young women. Um, actually, we could have we could have got to a much better place really quickly. Actually, a lot of it, I think, um, was about just not having these conversations, and and so I think just just having conversations and having conversations with people who've got different views, um, men and women getting together and just openly talking about these things and uh, acknowledging a, a lot of the points that Phil's just made, it, it, it feels to me that we could resolve quite a lot for the mm. mainstream. But I'm, I'm conscious that the, there's probably, looking around the world, certain cultures where this will be much more problematic. Um, there are probably um, subsectors of society where it would be more problematic. I'm sort of hoping, but without having any data, that a large majority could, we, we could see change if we can find a way to have some better um, conversations about better it. conversations yeah. and then not just conversations but then out uh, actions and plans that come out of conversations but i don't think i want to minimize how hard it is for us to do this i mean you know there are risks for both of you in taking part in a conversation like this um you know you're you're, you're opening yourselves up in in an area that you know as as you said you, you understand, but kind of at arm's length, the experience of women like myself. So you are making yourselves vulnerable by having this conversation. You know, the growing vocalization of women's anger about male sexual violence isn't really resulting in conversations that are useful and, and you know, build understandings. But what has made this conversation possible and other types of conversation perhaps more difficult? Or, you know, what would make a conversation like this work for you, Neville? And I'm gonna ask you in a minute, obviously, Phil too. And what would make it not work? Well, one of the things that, that happened, um, sadly, after Sarah Everard's murder, and then the vigil that you're aware of, and so mm -hmm. a lot of your readers, uh, sorry, listeners will be aware of, here in the UK, we've got a lot of, therefore, not surprisingly, conversations after that. And uh, I listened to um, an academic, Dr. Ellie Cosgrave, and she's at University College London, UCL. Mm. And yeah. she also came up with this, this concept of, um, or she called for a, a national movement to train 
active bystanders. Now, mm -hmm. I'd never even heard of active bystanders, but it, it was one of those, I thought, wow, it sounds really interesting. And I made the observation that what tends to happen for me or where I am most involved as a bystander is because I'm a keen cyclist and I basically commute around London, then my observation is that there are a number of male motorists who decide that female cyclists are um, worth winding down their windows to shout at, to right. tell them to do something when they're actually doing the right thing all along. And and it just, my observation is, maybe I'm a bit hypersensitive to this, is it's just straight bullying. And, uh, and so whenever I see that, I do, not only do I call it out, but I do it in a very unhelpful, aggressive way. I'd really like to do it in a more constructive, uh, <laughs> more effective way. And so, uh, bless her, she wrote back to me within 10 minutes. I was really, uh, oh, maybe great. I just resonated with it. Yeah, and she, she gave me a, a whole lot of information there on what she was talking about. Phil? Uh, I think uh, conversation is crucial, of course, and it's, it's how we go about achieving social change. It's through all the conversations mm -hmm. that occur. I think we need to know that conversations have phases and uh, you talked about the growing anger that women are expressing. Mm -hmm. It's now emerging. What I'm trying to say is we're not up to problem solving yet. Uh, we're still in, in a lot of conversations, individual conversations. It's about um, revealing things. But an awful lot of men would not be willing to listen to that or they would feel hugely defensive why is it that a lot of men don't want to hear that? Mm. I guess there are parallels in all sorts of experiences, aren't there? We, people don't want to hear about the plight of refugees. And mm. so, but I think as well, um, there's a particular toxicity to being um, told that you need to understand more about, in particular, racism um, and sexism or, you know, sexual power use as, as violence. And people, people are afraid of that conversation um, because they feel like they're being blamed in some way. And, I, and I'm just struggling with how we frame this conversation that really would welcome people and, and how to have that conversation without people feeling hurt or defensive or labeled. This has been a very, very small start on that and done for me in a very safe environment with two people who I know very well and love very much. Um, and we know that this conversation has a lot further to go um, in a lot of other places. But I just want to thank both of you tremendously for what you've done today. Uh, and I think we will have some very interesting reactions to this podcast. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Julie. You're very welcome, Julie. Thank you. I think that was a really fascinating conversation between Neville, Phil, and Julie, and I, I really felt like the entire time they were on the cusp of something, but, but just on the cusp. And I think that Julie raised a really important concern that there seems to be some toxicity in being able to have a real honest conversation about male sexual violence. And as Julie said, people feel like they're being blamed or they become defensive this conversation starts to happen. And I think that Phil and Neville, you know, raise a lot of different things. They raise the inability of men being able to call out other men, the impact of power, the impact of socialization on boys. And I think what Julie was trying to understand was what's going on in the middle of society. You know, it's always been the case that the average informs the extremes. And the example that I think of is Donald Trump's intolerant rhetoric. 
that when it begins to poison the minds of people that make up the average of society, you begin to see more extremists and white supremacist behavior on the margins of society, on the edges of society. And I think that it's the same with male sexual violence, that we have to look at what's going on in the middle of society in gender relations to help explain the manifestations of male sexual violence on the extremes. And I really felt like that's what Julie was trying to get into uh, with these two individuals. And what struck me with Julie's book, which came up a couple times in that conversation, was despite the terrible, absolutely terrible experiences that she had with male sexual violence, she was always able to look at the perpetrators as human beings. She was always able to acknowledge their suffering as human beings. And I think it takes a real exercise in compassion to be able to do that. And I I doubt that it's something that came overnight, but it, it takes a real strength of character to be able to do that. And so when Neville said that the primary reason for male sexual violence is power, I think he's absolutely correct. The question that they didn't ask after that, why do men need power? And the next question after that, the logical question is, why does anyone need power? And I truly believe that, you know, the need for power comes from weakness, that no one who is strong within themselves needs to gain power over another person. The need just doesn't exist there because in place of that need is contentment. And so if we take the compassionate approach to this societal problem uh, that Julie has done, I think there's a real possibility of having a conversation about male sexual violence that while denouncing perpetrator sexual violence can also understand that it's a manifestation of insecurity. I think that is the basis of all of it. You know, we ask ourselves, how are boys socialized? Are they being told that women's bodies are for their consumption? Yes, they are. Uh, Are some men using sexual encounters to gain power over women? Absolutely. Do some men fail to call out other men's bad behavior? Absolutely. But underlying all of those behaviors, underlying all of that is an insecurity, a suffering, an unhappiness. Because one can't be cruel and truly happy at the same time. It's just not possible. And so I think that conversation with Julie, Neville, and Phil really hung on the edge of that. And it really acknowledged the fact that this isn't a gender issue. This is a societal issue. And there needs to be space for everyone to be involved in the resolution of this uh, of this problem. And so I'm really happy that this conversation is starting and one of the people who's helping to lead is, is Julie. Despite all that she went through, she's able to approach the situation with compassion. I think that's what will create the space to really change the way in which people relate to one another on a fundamental level. That was such an interesting conversation that you guys had. And there's a lot to talk about there for sure. And Khalil already has done some of that. And we'll talk about what Khalil said as well. But kind of the one of the very first thing things that you talked about with Neville and Phil was you asked them what their reactions were to your book. Mm-hmm. Which is a big question, understandably. Anybody who has read your book, um, I'm sure, had... Um, a big reaction after reading it or during reading it and I thought it was so interesting when Neville said that he was so shocked I mean obviously he was upset and concerned and all of these things but one of the reasons he was so shocked was because 
he thinks of you and thought of you in university, the way you were in university was a very confident person, yeah. a kind of, as he, as he said, a, a take no shit kind of person, yeah. which of course you absolutely are to this day. Um, and so it, 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 I, you know, it was extra shocking to him that somebody like you had these experiences and that he didn't know, I guess, is, is the kind right. of the implication there. And I think that speaks so much to the kinds of um, not necessarily stereotypes, but I guess the ideas that we have about how how victims and survivors will look and behave and and mm. act and all of these things. And um, I think that goes for any kind of trauma that people have had. You know, there's kind of this general expectation that if you have experienced trauma, you will just be a complete wreck all of the time. Right you know, right, unable right. to function. And, and I do think it's a stereotype, actually. Yeah, I mean, it I, is. I, I right. think that, you know, we have a particular idea of, of who is vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And as you know, one of the reasons I wrote this book was to try to explode that idea of who is vulnerable because people don't look at me and yes. think of me as someone who's vulnerable. I think that's what, what Neville was saying. Mm-hmm. Yet, I was just as vulnerable as any other woman in those situations. Uh, I, I, and I think that, you know, this also it gets reflected in, you know, both Neville and Phil talked about their pain that they mm-hmm. felt by learning that this had happened to me. And I, I, I remember feeling almost impatient with them. <laughs> I want to move you away from talking about me and talking about the systemic issues. But of course, it takes some time to do that, especially when you're dealing with, you know, exploding one of your previous conceptions about somebody mm-hmm. as, as they were in this case. Yeah, it, it's, and that's so, I mean, we had this conversation about, you know, kind of your, your impatience there. And we talked about how it's, um, I think it's such a great illustration of why these conversations need to happen, but there needs yeah. to be, it needs to be ongoing and lots of yeah. them. And one conversation isn't going to solve anything because I think it's very human yeah. and very natural that anybody who is discussing um, something like this for the first time, especially with somebody that they care about and know, that, they know. Yeah. that it's going to take the person hearing it time to, they just, they need to express that kind of shock and horror and sympathy and concern and all of that stuff and I can also equally see why it would absolutely be a little bit frustrating for a survivor who is who's like well I've been thinking about this for yeah, I'm ready to a long on. time yes I'm ready to, I've been thinking about this a lot I don't necessarily want you know but you so it's this kind of conflicting thing but I think it illustrates the fact that like you need to have those conversations and then you know, perhaps be able to move from there into these conversations. I mean, I thought that that Phil said it so well when he talks about conversations having a lot of phases. And this particular conversation isn't yet in the problem-solving phase. And I think that it was an expression of what he felt. That, you know, he still needed to kind of absorb this and think it through and and trying to solve it, you know. Is, yes. is, is out there somewhere on the horizon, but, you know, needs a lot more conversation first. And, uh, you know, we heard from them both, because Neville talked a bit yes. about this too, uh, how they are trying to process this. Yeah, and I really, really appreciated uh, when Neville talked about one of the reactions that he had to reading your book was 
um, you know, great. I'm so glad to hear this, that he, as you were kind of asking about, was, was thinking about going back in his life and his mind and thinking about times where either he or other men that he knew um, behaved in ways or, or perhaps didn't, didn't speak up or, or, you know, all of that, you know, wide yeah. range of, of things and how it made him, he, if he, he felt the need to actually start writing it down, which I thought was yeah. such a great idea. And so what a valuable thing for people yeah. to do. Um, and then talking about how, like, you know, interestingly, he wrote it down and that didn't necessarily, he didn't end up with all of this great understanding right. no, of writing it down, <laughs> although he did feel yeah. this catharsis. And I think that also speaks to the, the process here that just because, okay. you know, doing something like that, processing all this kinds of, all these kinds of things in all these different kinds of ways, just because they don't immediately lead to an obvious um, eureka moment or solution to these problems. No, and I need to take responsibility here as well. I mean, I, I leapt into this with such great enthusiasm. I've been <laughs> trying to persuade a number of different organizations across the country to, you know, to run this kind of a dialogue and that I would participate in it or help to facilitate it. And I've mostly gotten the response of, oh my God, no. <laughs> and and so, you know, I was so excited about doing this. And I think I, you know, I what I've learned from it is that everybody begins with their own process, you know, and mm. Phil's equivalent was he takes a lot of what he's learned as a mediator mm. and he's using that, especially his analysis of power to understand this. But again, it's a process. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, Khalil picks this theme up yes. perfectly when he talks about this being on the cusp of a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. He really got it. I think that that this was such a good and important conversation, but you were kind of on the cusp and that that illustrates the need to keep having these conversations. Yeah. You know, one of the other things that really uh, stood out to me about what Khalil said was when he talked about how. Um, the average informs the extremes. And he yeah. gave the example of, of Trump. And I, it's a good one, you know, that we need to be going to kind of the middle of society and just kind of everyday people's lives and, and not exclusively focusing on the really horrible, explosive Extreme. extremes. Yeah. Yeah. But looking at how those things ultimately end up being informed by the, the just yeah. the daily things and the attitudes and, right. uh, um, and just the complicity that we all have really. And Khalil did a beautiful job summing things up when at the end of his piece, he talked about how this is a societal issue, not a gender issue. And many people have made that point, but I think it bears repeating over and over again. We all need to keep this in mind that everyone needs to be involved in this conversation, in this process, and in hopefully finding solutions and making a better society around around um, sexual violence and sexual harassment and it's not just the problem of women to solve that men need to be solving this problem as well and this is our modest contribution and we would yes. be delighted to hear from people as to what they thought about this episode yes thank you to neville phil and Khalil. Welcome back to In Other News. My name is Katie Paff, and I will be your news correspondent on this episode of Jumping Off of the Ivory Tower. For any new listeners, this segment is all about summarizing news stories in the world of access to justice. I'm happy to recap the following news stories from the past few weeks. 
Our news today will focus on what access to justice looks like in a post-COVID world, beginning with former Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin's keynote address to the annual summit of the Action Committee on Access to Justice in Civil and Family Matters. She spoke on the topic of when life gives you lemons and remarks that the past year has given us all an abundance of lemons. However, she is hopeful that we can create a people-centered justice system and beyond that, restorative justice to heal will be part of the new thinking around how we define justice. The pandemic has created an opportunity to create a more resilient and efficient justice system, a challenge I hope many lawyers rise to the occasion for. Our second news story shares how to put a people-centered justice system to practice. Alberta Legal Aid President John Panuza shares that the accommodations and changes the pandemic has brought on must continue to obtain meaningful access to justice. He notes that domestic violence didn't go away during the lockdown and have been on the rise. Legal Aid Alberta saw an 8% increase in emergency protection orders since the pandemic began. Further, the ability to connect with a lawyer virtually allows for increased access to speak to counsel and has streamlined the process before appearing in court and can support victims of violence as quickly as possible. He hopes initiatives like this continue after the pandemic and more innovative approaches to meet client needs continue to be developed. That's it for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. Join us next episode for another thought-provoking conversation.